Good evening. It's good to be with you tonight to reflect on the cross, on that precious blood of Jesus. I wonder if you would, just for a moment, think back with me to your childhood. And it's likely that at some point along the way, you've had the experience of picking teams. For some game or some sport, you've seen this scenario many times, probably in movies, or you've had flashbacks and woken up in a terror. You stood in a group of kids, like chattel, waiting for your name to be called by one of two team captains. And every time a name was called that wasn't yours, your self-worth sunk a little bit lower, and you stood out a little bit more as an undesirable. You have no idea what I'm talking about because you were that kid that always got picked first. Just keep that to yourself. (laughs) Now, how do these two captains make these, these wise judgments, bestowing glory on one kid and shame on another? How do they do that? Well, it's largely by external appearances. It's it's what they look like. Some kids look like athletes and others don't. If teams are being picked for a game of basketball, the tallest kid is probably going to be picked first, and the shortest kid is probably going to be picked last. Appearances tell us something about the nature of a thing. We expect the form to match the substance. The fangs in the claws of a lion tell us something about the nature of a lion that's different from what the fangs and the claws of a puppy tell us, or a kitty cat. But what happens when appearances do not meet expectations? When the form and the substance are mismatched? On Good Friday, we're gathered here to consider a mismatch. You cannot get more mismatched than the Son of God the king of glory, hanging on a cross. So tonight what we want to try to do is make some sense of the cross in order that it may impact our hearts. Because the message of the cross is totally confusing. It doesn't make any sense. It claims to have the greatest power, the greatest wisdom, and yet it appears totally foolish and weak. How do we account for this? We're going to turn to Isaiah 52 for some help in trying to figure this out. So if you have your Bibles with you or there's some Bibles underneath the seats, go ahead and open up to Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, and we'll look all the way to Isaiah 53, verse 12. Uh, This section... It's a unit of poetry and prophecy written sometime towards the end of the 8th century B.C. by the prophet Isaiah. And it describes a future servant of God who will one day bring restoration to a beaten down and broken Israel. In the New Testament, we find this passage quoted or alluded to again and again in reference to Jesus Christ. I'll give you just one quick example. When Philip approaches the Ethiopian eunuch 
in Acts chapter 8, the eunuch is sitting in his chariot, and he's reading from Isaiah 53, from this passage that we're going to look at. And he invites Philip to come join him sitting on the chariot, and he asks him, about whom does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then we're told that Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. So as we read this passage, understand that the New Testament authors understood fully that it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This, this passage in Isaiah is talking about Jesus. He is the servant who would restore not just Israel, but a, a people from every nation. Now, normally we would take a passage and read it verse by verse, but tonight's going to look a little different in that we're going to cover just a few select verses. Uh, this unit of poetry can be broken down into five stanzas. So what I've done is I've just taken one verse from each stanza, and I've tried to choose a verse that is representative of the whole. And so hopefully we'll be able to get a good idea of the flow of Isaiah's thought and what God is speaking in this passage. So let's go ahead and start. Uh, after, after we do this, we're going to hear a reading of the whole passage and be able to just sit and listen and, and let it soak in. But for right now, let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. <clears throat> it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. Isaiah was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Israel, as I've said, during the 8th century B.C. So if you're familiar with the history of Israel, you know that the glory days of Israel are long gone. The glory days under the rules of King David, King Solomon, are a thing of the past. The sin of Israel's kings has led to the kingdom splitting into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the kingdoms have become increasingly weak. During Isaiah's life, they're threatened by the power of Assyria, and the prophet also predicts Judah's eventual exile into Babylon. So these are the sad conditions into which God speaks through Isaiah about a servant who will act wisely, contrasted with all the kings who have been acting in sin. This servant will act wisely, he will be lifted up and exalted, and later in the stanza we're told that kings will shut their mouths before him. So the picture that this first stanza paints for us is one of future glory. This is a ruling king who does what is right, and everyone, even, even kings from foreign nations, bend their knee before him. So far, so good. There's, there's nothing confusing or off-putting about this message. It's a, it's a message of glory, and we know what glory is. We don't have to have glory explained to us. We, when we see it, we recognize it intuitively. Celebrities have glory. Superstar athletes have glory. Alexander the Great and his armies, presidents and kings, redwoods, oceans, and the biggest kid on the playground all have a kind of glory. 
So no doubt the Jews living in exile who received this prophecy could vividly imagine what this glorious servant would look like and what he would do. He would be a king who would come conquering on a horse with a sword in his right hand. He would be majestic. He would command armies. He would smite his foes and deliver his people, and he would rule over them in justice. This is, this is the shape of glory. This is King David on steroids. So the Jews had categories for this kind of prophecy, this kind of promise. They were waiting for this and hoping for this. All their hopes were set on this future glorious king who would restore the kingdom of Israel. But then things start to get confusing in the second stanza, chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. A mismatch arises. Just listen to verse 3, for example, where this promised glorious servant is described further. It reads, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now we start to scratch our heads. Because the promise of glory is not readily visible in a despised, rejected, sorrowful man from whom people hide their faces. The form and the substance appear to be unfitted for one another. Verse 2 tells us this glorious king has no beauty, no majesty. This This servant who will silence kings is not even esteemed by his own people. He's despised. They hide their faces from him. This sounds more like the road to Calvary than the road to glory. The promise of glory has suddenly been violently forced into the mold of the cross. So let me just give you some more imagery. This is the splendor of California redwoods hidden in an Arizona desert shrub. It's the roaring of ocean waves muffled by the sound of a dripping faucet. It's no wonder that in verse 1, he asks, who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Nobody could believe this because the appearance was so different from the substance. Jesus simply didn't fit the profile of a glory-bound king. So the question that naturally arises is how do we reconcile the promise of glory in 52.13 with the inglorious one of 53.3? The answer comes in the third stanza, verses 4 through 6. We'll just look at verse 4. Listen carefully because this is the key to making sense of the cross. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The solution is in the little possessive pronoun, our. Did you see it there? It's repeated twice. Our griefs, our sorrows. 
The man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief in verse 3 is such not because of anything that he has done to warrant sorrow and grief, but because he is bearing the sorrow and grief of another. He's bearing the sorrow and grief of his people. So to restate it, how do, how do we make sense of the cross? How do we reconcile the promise of glory with the shamed, cursed, and despised Jesus? Only by understanding that Jesus came to be a substitute. Verse 6 tells us that every one of us has gone astray. We have, every single one of us, rejected God's law and his rule and have committed treason against our creator king. But God has laid on Jesus the iniquities of us all, and our sorrow has become his. What an extraordinary thought. Take time to consider this, to to just pause and wonder. I'm speaking specifically to those of you who identify with Jesus, who who claim to be Christians. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, has truly and experientially taken on the sorrow of our sin. The most vile things you have ever done, the most wretched thoughts and desires that your heart has ever conjured up, things that you would never speak out loud, have been placed upon Jesus. If that terrible and glorious reality has grown stale for you, I hope that tonight the fire is rekindled. Isaiah means for us to meditate on the agony and the pain of the Messiah, which was not rightly his to bear, but but ours. Consider the consequence for Jesus in taking our sins upon himself. In the fourth stanza, this is verses 7 through 9. So verses 4 through 6 lay out the fact that Jesus took our sin, and now in 7 through 9, it lays out the consequence for his taking on of our sin. And we'll just read verse 8. It says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? So in a word, the consequence is death. This morning, as I was reflecting on this verse, I had a cup of coffee in my hand, and, and I had the thought, I can enjoy this cup of coffee right now only because Jesus Christ was cut off from the land of the living. It's kind of a weird thought. But Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And if I got what I rightly deserved, it would be immediate spiritual and physical death. And that's true for every single one of us. If you think that God is not so severe or that the God of the Bible is too loving to punish sin so harshly, just look at the cross. God is a holy God and he will not endure sin in his presence. That's why when Jesus took on the guilt of our sin, he had to be cut off from the land of the living. The cross was nothing less than the wrathful judgment of God. 
but consider too the great love of God. Jesus, innocent and glorious, willingly bore the death that should have been ours. Don't think that because Jesus was fully God that it was an easy thing to do. Like, I'm divine so I can just take it all in and absorb it and it means nothing. Don't forget that while he was fully God, he was also fully human. And so in his humanity, he fully experienced the penalty of our sin. He sweat drops of blood. He cried out in agony, Father, why have you forsaken me? He felt alone and abandoned. He thirsted. He was pierced. He was crushed. How great the love of God for us. He endured the death that should have been ours to give us life. So Christian, whatever sorrows, whatever trials, whatever pain you are facing today, let the sorrow of Jesus give you perspective. He has already dealt with your greatest enemy. He's already carried the heaviest weight. What you're enduring now, while it may not be easy, it is temporary, and it pales in comparison to the divine wrath that Jesus embraced on your behalf. His death is our death. The greatest problem we have, we had, has been dealt with for you who have trusted in Christ. Verse 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This last stanza, verses 10 through 12, shows us how the promise of glory is delivered through the very means that cause people to reject Jesus. Because he came in weakness, because he gave himself up to the cross and was crushed for our sins, he was rejected by the world. And yet, because he came in weakness, because he gave himself up to the cross and was crushed for our sins, the Lord has exalted him, raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand of his heavenly throne. He shall see the fruit of his sacrifice, his offspring that it refers to, a people purchased from every nation, and his days shall be unending. If you are not a Christian today and you have not put your trust in Christ, turning from your sin to receive his lordship, consider what we've read tonight. Don't make the mistake of scoffing at the weakness of the cross or the weakness that it calls you to. You cannot come to the cross with any pretense of glory. Your good deeds are useless at the cross. Your reputation, your money, your successes, the people you know, none of these things have a voice at the cross. There is only the suffering servant ready to receive your sins and your death. The world will tell you that you're foolish, that the cross is folly, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God for salvation.
cross is confusing because it takes the promise of glory and it plunges it into a bucket of sorrow and rejection. But we can make sense of the cross when we realize that the sorrow and rejection was not his, but ours. Jesus bore it on our behalf, even to death. And it is through this very means that the promise of glory is in fact fulfilled. And one day, kings will see it, and they will shut their mouths. Because in the most surprising way, Jesus has been lifted up and exalted by taking our death and making it his. Will you pray with me? Oh God, what can we say before you? What, what can we bring before you? We, we have nothing to boast in but the cross. We have no hope except what Jesus has accomplished before, before you in pouring out his blood. Lord, may we come to you humbly, knowing that you have taken our death to give us life. May we live in that life, knowing that you have paid the full penalty of sin on our behalf and that the wrath of God has been fully satisfied. Thank you for your great, great love that brought about the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.